Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5? We're cruising right through. If you don't have a Bible, would you put your hand up? And our ushers are walking around with Bibles in hand. Uh, They can pass one off to you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, that's actually your Bible to keep. You can take that one with you. Uh, So Mark chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 1 today. I want to start out just by telling you a story um, from my EMS career in the past. I remember years ago... I, uh, I responded for a call for a cardiac arrest, and if you don't know what a cardiac arrest is, that's when somebody's heart stops and they, they then need to be revived. Um, they are actually clinically dead when you arrive, typically, when they're, in, when they're in cardiac arrest. And so we get called out for a cardiac arrest, and we arrive on scenes, and usually what happens when we get on scene for a cardiac arrest is we have four or five different bags we now have to grab, and we, we go into the house quickly so we can get to the victim because... Uh, uh, in those instances, within four minutes, if somebody doesn't start receiving CPR, uh, their brain and their heart tissue begin to die. And so four minutes after they've collapsed and their heart was stopped, they need CPR within four minutes. Uh, usually within uh, eight to 12 minutes, um, that's when you have irreversible death that can occur. And so we, we go quickly into this house to, to get ready to um, begin CPR and start trying to work on this gentleman. And when we get inside, we get into the living room where all of the family is. And seated in a recliner right before us is a very angry-looking older gentleman who then proceeds to tell us he, in fact, is not in cardiac arrest. He was having a nice afternoon nap when his linebacker high school grandson thought grandpa died, yanks him onto the floor and starts CPR. (laughs) So now I've got to take grandpa to the hospital because this big brick-built teenager probably broke a rib or two during CPR, so now grandpa just needs x-rays. But what happened is this high school grandkid misdiagnosed a nap as grandpa's dead, and he applied the wrong solution to the situation. And as we come to our text this morning, what we're going to find is something similar happens. Jesus, if you remember from last week, was on the sea with his disciples Many of you would be familiar with this story. Jesus was in the helm of a boat, uh, and uh, he uh, fell asleep, and a storm came on this boat, and his disciples were scared, and they awoke him, and Jesus calmed the storm, and now they've arrived in the land of the Gerasenes, is what we learn. And as they arrive, they're going to be met with a man out of the tombs in the Gerasenes. Um, The people of this land had tried to apply a solution to this man's problem, but it was the wrong solution. And so when Jesus arrives, he applies a different solution. And what we're going to see is this man does not have a physical problem. He has a spiritual problem, and a spiritual problem requires a spiritual solution. Let's read our text together this morning. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I was in Mark 1. Let me flip over to Mark 5. There we go. Now I'm on track. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him. 
And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that we have that comes to us this morning. God, I pray that as we investigate what seems like a fantastic story between Jesus and demons and possessions and pigs and just the craziness of what's happening here, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts to understand what it is you've put in your word for us today. Help us see the truth of your word, to believe it in our hearts and to respond to it appropriately as you would call us this morning. I thank you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to this text this morning, this is a fantastic story. I don't know if you've ever read this story. This is one of those where doubt can start to set in. Like we have all this craziness with these pigs and demons going from a man to pigs. And like this maybe is something that Mark just manufactured. And like, well, let me let you down easy. I'm not going to delve heavy into the pigs. Some of you guys are going today like, I want to know about the pigs. Why the pigs? We're really not going to go into that deep. Um, so sorry to disappoint. But... As we start out this passage, what we encounter in just the first five verses is a fantastic story. When I say fantastic, not good, but unbelievable story about a man who has been demonized, filled with the demonic, is is how Mark describes him. And when Jesus and his disciples land in this territory, I don't know that his disciples expected anything different. I said last week that Mark was really using that scene in the storm to set this up. Consider how Mark has been building into this story today. Last week we discovered that uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they set out on the sea of Galilee. And I told you that sea is known for its windstorms. Well, what time of day did they set out? They set out in the evening. So as these storms come, Mark is already getting our attention like a night is falling and these gusty winds kick up, and the storms by nightfall are so crazy that they threaten to capsize the boat. Mark is setting up like this is an intense night scene of terror, and they're delivered from this storm only to arrive in Gentile territory. And if you are a good God-fearing Jew, the last place you want to be is in Gentile territory. 
You see, because Israel is under God's blessing, but the Gentiles, man, those are the ones God smite them. Get the Gentiles, right? So you might expect like, to in- encounter the demonic and the spiritual oppression and the evil that happens. Like, man, God's judgment's on those people. And so they arrive at the coast of the Gerasenes, this Gentile territory, and what do they encounter? Man, they encounter the demonic. What Mark tells us is this man, they no longer uh, or no sooner docked on the shore when this man comes screaming at them and howling, and he's filled with demons. And here's the first thing we have to encounter in 21st century century America. This is the first thing we have to wrestle with is the idea of the demonic. You see, through the 17th century and the 18th century, all of Western civilization went through this thing called the Age of Enlightenment. I don't know if you've heard of what that is. The Age of Enlightenment was a period in history when people began to pin science against religion. You either get to believe in rational ideas and thought, or you have to believe in that fanciful faith stuff, which is just ridiculous. And out of that, they began to pin science. You can be a rationalist or you can be a religionist, but you cannot be both. And they thought these were two different camps. And I want to share with you two quotes out of the Age of Enlightenment that really drove this. The first is from a man named David Hume. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. He was a staunch atheist and a philosopher who disavowed any belief in religion. And this is what David Hume said in the 17th century. Speaking about spirituality and religion, he says, he says, for besides the unavoidable incoherencies of spirituality and religion, which must be reconciled and adjusted, one may safely affirm that all popular theology, especially anything that claims to be scholastic, has a kind of appetite for the absurdity and for contradiction. And if that theology went not beyond reason and common sense, her doctrines would appear too easy and familiar. Amazement must be of necessity raised. Mystery must be affected. Darkness and obscurity must be sought. And the foundation of merit afforded to devout devotees who desire an opportunity of subduing their rebellious reasons by belief in the most unintelligible sophisms. He used a lot of big words in there, and this is essentially what David Hume says. If you are really going to believe in the fanciful mysteries and ridiculousness of religion, then you've got to leave intelligence at the doorstep. They are unintelligible sophisms. He was joined by another man named Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant said this, faith and religion detach themselves completely from experience and make for themselves object for which experience supplies no material, whose objective reality is not based on the completion of the empirical series, but based on pure a priori concepts. Again, a lot of big words, and this is what Immanuel Kant is saying. I love how it was summed up by another, uh, another, another philosopher who said this, Immanuel Kant would say, Faith has no room in the, reason, in the house that reason built. Faith has no room in the house that reason built. You can either believe in the ridiculousness of religion, but those things are detached from experience. What you needed to believe in is hard science. What you can experience and see and taste and touch and hear, that's what you should believe in. The rest of it is just ridiculous. 
that took hold in Western civilization, and it's brought us even to today where people pit science against the spiritual. You either get to believe the spiritual exists or you get to believe in science, but you cannot believe in both. That idea has stuck, and honestly, it's infiltrated the church. Even those who would profess, yes, I believe in a God, Many Christians, people who would say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus, reject the idea of hell. Every poll shows that more people, even believers, are willing to believe in God, but fewer are willing to believe in Satan because of these creeping ideas of the age of enlightenment. It just seems ridiculous. To believe in the demonic, man, then you go looking all crazy and you've seen the videos online, people dancing in church and running through the aisles and casting out demons and screaming lunatics and it just looks crazy. And I don't want to look like that. I don't want to seem like I'm like that. So you know what? I'll believe in God and that's good enough for me. And then we reject the believability of the demonic. There's one other quote from the 17th century by a pastor and author named John Wilkinson. This is what he said in one of his sermons and in one of his books. One of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. One of the greatest tricks of Satan is to convince people that he's not even real. Because if he can convince you he's not real then you're not looking for where he's at work. And if you're not looking for where he's at work, you can't come up with an intelligible solution of how to overcome the spiritual forces of evil. You're like the high school linebacker putting CPR to nap and grandpa because CPR didn't seem like a feasible solution. I'm sorry, well, because waking grandpa didn't seem like a feasible solution. The reality... The reality is Satan and the demonic are no less real and active today than they were in the first century church when Mark recorded these events. The demonic are active today. All you need to do is walk downtown and see some of the people who have been driven out of their minds. Go to the east side. I'm not saying that every case of mental dysfunction is a case of demon possession, but I'm saying I think often we have come to the place where we reject demon possession and demonic activity to the point where we, we reject it as a possibility in some of the people we pass by and walk by in the streets, some of the people who inhabit our neighborhoods. If that's too fanciful, then we must apply the other realities, and that's just science. But Satan is alive and active. If you are willing to believe in the existence of a personal, almighty, spiritual good, which we call God, then the reality is it's equally as feasible for there to be a personal, spiritual evil that is Satan and the demonic. He exists. And what we see in Mark is a record of what happens when the demonic grabs a hold of somebody. Look back at the text with me. Starting in verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Listen to how he's described. He lived among the tombs. 
And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. What we have here is one of the most lamentable pictures of human wretchedness ever described in Scripture. Maybe if you've read the book of Job, maybe Job compares. Maybe. But this man, he's naked, is what Luke tells us when Luke records the story. He has no clothes. He's deranged and crying out. Can you imagine driving down Washington Street at midnight, the street lights go out, and in the graveyard there on the north side of the street, you hear screeching that seems otherworldly coming out of the tombs in the graveyard. And that's what this community lived with, night and day. He lived with the dead and screeching and howling with the demonic. This man terrorized this community. Though he was alive, he lived among the dead. Not only did he sound demonically possessed, not only did he sound deranged, but cutting himself and scarring himself with the rocks, he was bloodied and scarred and cut open. This man was unsightly, and he terrorized a community. And there is a human wretchedness described here. Like this man is now a shell of a human, lost of almost all the humanity that had at one time existed within him. And you know, when we encounter a text like this, when we encounter this passage, when we see what this man is like, we're forced to wrestle with the question of why. Why is he like that? Why is it that the demonic desires to destroy his humanity in the way it does? Why, if Satan exists, why does he hate humanity? Why would he hate you and I? Why would he hate this man in such a way that he would drive him to lose everything of himself and become so lamentable? What's the hatred? And the answer to the why is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's because of what this man represents. More so, it's because of who you and I represent. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, as God begins at the dawn of creation to create the sun and the moon and the sky and the the seas and the heaven and the earth and he creates land and the oceans and and all of the birds and the fish and all of the creeping things then you come to the final day of God's creative activity and what does he do in verse 26 we see God say and let us create man after our own image and in our own likeness. About none of the rest of creation did God say, my image is imprinted on creation. But when he created mankind, when he created Adam and Eve, he said on humanity, we're going to put our image. Why does Satan, why do the demonic 
want to rip the humanity out of this man? And why would Satan desire to be so destructive to you and me? It's because we bear the image of God. And Satan and all of his goal ultimately is to destroy the image of God whenever and wherever he finds it because he detests God. He is set against him and wherever he finds him, he wants to destroy him. And that's just what he did to this man. How is it that we bear the image of God? Theologians still uh, are trying to come to a cohesive understanding. It's not put clearly in here. Let me tell you some ways that we do bear the image of God. These are clear in, in God's creative goodness. With our mental capacity for reason and ration and free will and decision making. Animals, fish, all those operate on instinct. You and I have capacity to chew on a decision and reason and ration through something and make a decision. We've been given free will. These emulate after our Creator, God, who has free will and thinks and reasons and rations and has wisdom. And what do you see in this man? Those things have been ripped from him. How else do we bear the image of God? Well, we're, we're physical. We are made up of flesh and bone, but we are also spiritual. God put within us a soul that will exist for eternity either in heaven or hell. And that soul, Scripture is clear, God is spirit. And we bear the image of God and that we are spirit just as he is spirit. We have a soul that will live for eternity. And what do we see in this man? His soul has been crushed and distorted and the image of God has been twisted and his humanity has been ripped so that the image of God is hardly recognizable. Here's a second thing I think that we struggle with and a big problem we have in Christianity today. And it comes from the second half of the quote out of Wilkinson. He said this, after saying one of the artifices, one of the tricks, that's a big word for tricks, of Satan is to induce men that he does not exist. He says another and perhaps equally fatal artifice is Satan, that Satan uses is to make people believe that he's obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them if they get into true silence. If we believe Satan exists, we tend to think to ourselves, but I'm nobody. He doesn't want to mess with me anyway. I'm not a great evangelist out there saving the world. I'm not a great preacher preaching in a mega church. I'm not out there doing great works in the name of God. You know what? I show up at church and I'm just doing my own thing and I believe in the Lord and that's just good enough for me. Satan's not going to mess with me. We believe that, don't we? Like he has bigger targets. He's got a limited number of demons. He's got bigger targets. He ain't messing with me. Well, let me tell you, wherever sin exists, the work of Satan persists. Have you been touched by sin? The very nature that you've inherited from your ancestors, Adam and Eve, says you are touched by sin. That is the work of Satan because where sin exists, the image of God is twisted and distorted and out of joint. Satan desires to destroy the image of God in you too and in me. And the way that is done is when we are tempted and we give in to sin and that sin mars that image of God. We're built to be a mirror 
that has stood before its creator and the image of that creator has been burned and then we are to go and reflect that image into creation and reflect God's glory and his holiness and his might and his glory. And sin mars and stains that image, throws dirt on the mirror, scuffs it up so the image we bear is just weak and hardly discernible. We tend to think, I'm so meek and mild, I ain't the loud and proud. But you represent the very thing that Satan hates. And that's the representative of God in his creation. So Satan is destroying. But then what we see in the passage is Jesus is restoring. When Jesus encounters the marred, and scarred and twisted image of God in this man, what Jesus is doing is an image-restoring work. Look back at the text starting in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. For now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out of him and entered into the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. This is what we see. This is the main point Mark is driving home to you and me out of the text this morning. By the power of Jesus, God is restoring in us, or restoring us as his image bearers for his glory. By the power of Jesus, that we see at work in the text. God is restoring us as his image bearers for his glory. Remember, there was a couple of years ago, I was hanging out with a guy. Of course, when guys hang out, we talk just about athleticism and, you know, macho masculine stuff, right? That's all we got, the James Bond and whatever, masculine stuff, right? So we're, we're just talking about our, our athletic abilities, and, you know, I'm a little trimmer than I was, but I'm still kind of a fluffy guy, and this guy challenges me to a race. As we're t- so I'm like, yeah, I'll race you. Why not? I'll take you on. Like, did you even see me? I'm bald, so I've got low wind resistance. <laughs> so here we go. We get set up, and we get lined up, and I'm like, you know what? I'm confident I'm going to win, so I'll let you shout go. So he shouts go. We had had our, our destination mark, and we take off, and I got to tell you, man, I smoked that guy. I go walking loud and proud like, oh, yeah. See that, how fast I, last time you challenged me to a race. Man, in his sweet little eight-year-old voice, Hudson goes, yeah, Dad, you're super fast. (laughs) Y'all, I walked away from that thinking, man, I'm ready for the Boston Marathon. Olympics, here I come. Like, sign me up for Paris. (laughs) But the moment I'd meet real competition, guess what? My power would look so weak in comparison I may look pretty powerful to an eight-year-old boy, but, man, I got nothing on the race circuit. This demon that terrorized these people, that screamed from those tombs, 
that broke the chains. Look how many words he uses to describe the power of this demoniac. He would wrench the chains apart. He broke the shackles. No one could restrain him. They had been applying a worldly solution to a spiritual problem, and it wasn't working because of the power of this demon. Not only was the demon powerful, when Jesus says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, because there's so many of us in here. A legion was a term that would describe roughly about 6,000 Roman soldiers. What he's saying is you're vastly outnumbered, Jesus. But when these demons encounter Jesus, what do they do? It says this man ran up to Jesus and overpowered him. Is that what it says? And the man fell down before him. Y'all, the demons were not worshiping. Usually, the word typically used in the Hebrew is proskynon. It is to fall down and worship It's not what happened here. These demons weren't worshiping. They were compelled that they had to fall down before authority. Not that they wanted to. Not that their desire was to honor Jesus and the authority he had. But by the power of Jesus, they couldn't help. But when they arrived before Jesus, they fell down. Y'all, they may have conquered the image of God in this man, but when the substance of that image stood before them, Jesus, as the divine substance of God, came and stood before him, they could not conquer the substance even though they conquered the image. They met true power. They fell. Y'all, Satan came to destroy and distort But what the text shows us is what he came to destroy and distort finds its restoration in Jesus. There's a deep wound that had occurred in this man, a gaping open wound where the image of God had been carved out and scarred almost with those rocks like he was cutting away the image. And by the power of Jesus, he was being restored. We see that Jesus is the restorer restorer of God's image throughout the New Testament. And no place is clearer than in Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is Jesus doing when he redeems you from the work of Satan that mars that image of God within you? Man, he's imprinting his image back on you. What is he doing the longer you live in relationship with him and walk through this process we call sanctification? He's making you to look more and more like him, continuing to paint on that tapestry that you are, the image that looks more and more like him, so that you can again reflect the image of Almighty God into his creation and be raised back up for that purpose for which you were created. Three weeks ago, Jen and I 
got to have our first terrible dry cleaning experience. Y'all ever had a bad experience with dry? I thought that only happened in movies, but apparently it's like a real thing. So we drop our, our comforter. We have, a, we have a dog. Some of you have met our dog. Um, and our dog loves to eat grass and then come into the house. And if you have dogs, you know what they do when they eat grass. And she loves to sleep on our bed, on our $150 comforter or whatever that dang thing is. And she just let loose all over the dang thing. And so doggone it, we got to send this thing off to get going. By the way, uh, if you're looking for a dog, we have a cheap one. Unrelated note. Totally unrelated, but... Uh, Anyway, so we send this thing off to the dry cleaner. They say, okay, come back in a week and pick it up. So I show back up. I gave them 10 days. Show up, and they're like, uh, sorry, we still don't have it back because they send all their stuff out for dry cleaning. And uh, okay, they said, try back in another three days, and maybe we'll have it then. So I come back in another three days, and this lady hands me a comforter, but it is, not, it is very clearly not the comforter I had originally given her. So I start to tell her, ma'am, this is not my comforter. It has my tag on it. You guys stapled the right tag to it. That's not my comforter. And she looks at me, no, no, it's your comforter. I feel like I know what this thing looks like. I've slept under the dang thing for like two years now. Like, that is not my... And she starts arguing with me. And so I'm like, you need to find my dang comforter. And so she finally relents. And she's like, okay, I'll call, but I know this is your comforter. So finally, she calls back a, like a day later to my wife, and she's like, I'm so sorry, we, we got it mixed up. Yes, we still have your comforter. And she gives it back to us. And when she gives it back to Jen, when she goes to pick it up, she's like, by the way, the stain, we, we couldn't get it out. And she's like, there's just an outline of it. So we put it back on our bed. The entire stain is still there. She said, we had to go through three rounds of cleaning with this comforter. We put it through three rounds of chemical treatment, and no matter what we did, we couldn't get the stain back out of the comforter. And so here we are. I mean, it's clean, but we have this like lumpy stained comforter that's like no good for anybody. I think we think we're like that comforter. Like I've been so stained by my sin. The image of God has been so scratched out. Like can I actually be cleansed? And like can I be clean to the point where I'm actually clean again? Can this mirror that I'm supposed to be actually be restored to bear the image of God? Or have I just done too much in my life? Jesus took on an entire legion of demons, and it wasn't even a battle. He said, get out, and they got out. There is no stain on your soul that cannot be cleansed by the restoring power of Jesus. There is no damage done to the image of God within you that Jesus cannot restore it. What he's pointing us to as you can be restored in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you spent 40 years a sinner, 90 years a sinner. The moment the Holy Spirit comes in and does the cleansing work and Jesus says, you are forgiven, the stain is holy gone and the image gets to be restored. Look at the change in this man, starting in verse 15. Look at who he was, and now look at who he is. And the townspeople came out to Jesus, and they saw the man who was demon-possessed. Remember how he had been described? 
Now he was sitting there. He wasn't raving and running through the tombs. Now he was seated. He'd been calmed. Now he was sitting there in his right mind, no longer deranged and screaming and howling, no longer amidst the tombs, but sitting amidst people. They were afraid. This man went from wholly destroyed to wholly restored like that. And that is the power of Jesus to restore and cleanse our souls as well. If he can do it for this man, this demoniac, he can do it for you too. Last thing we see out of the text is we are reflecting. So Satan is destroying Jesus is restoring, and the word will be reflecting. Look back at the text starting in verse 14. The herdsmen fled, and they told him the city and then the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw that demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You and I were made just like a mirror to reflect the image of God. So this is the question that gets posed to us today. Like the townspeople, will you fearfully reject Jesus? Or like the demoniac who experienced restoration, will you reflect Jesus? Will you fearfully reject? Or will you faithfully reflect? you about another call I ran a number of years ago. Ran a call for a, a woman who had fallen in her home. Um, when we arrived at her home, it was one of the worst living conditions I saw in my nearly 20-year career as a paramedic. We walked into the house, and she was laying on what would be the kitchen floor, but it was actually trash. Um, every floor was covered several feet high, not just in newspapers and magazines like you see hoarder homes in movies, but strewn about the place, food trash and refuse and trash bags that never made it out to the curb. And there was not a seating spot except for one tore apart recliner that she sat herself in. She had no bed to sleep in. The tub was filled with trash, nowhere to cook the sinks and the counters. There was no food even in the fridge. This woman suffered from severe agoraphobia. And she was so fearful to go out in public, she wouldn't go out and do her shopping. She wouldn't even go out and seek medical care because she was so afraid of people. And so when we got to her, she said, I just need help off my floor, help me back into my chair, and then I'm going to be okay. And when we got in there, we noticed that she had a, a plastic bag tied around her ankle. Oh, Ma'am, what's... What's with that? Oh, well, I have a sore, and so I'm just taking care of the sore. I need to see your sore. And so we took off 
the plastic bag, and then we began to peel layer after layer of paper towel that were soaked through with all of the prevalence of the wound until finally we got to this big, gaping wound that was on her leg that had been there for months. But because she was so afraid to leave the house, every time a new layer of paper towel was soaked through, she'd wrap it with another paper towel, thinking, I'm just going to treat it on my own, and I'm going to take care of it on my own, and this is going to be okay. Until finally she just wrapped the plastic bag on it. I think that's what we tend to do. We have this big, scarred, gaping wound of the image of God, and we're prone to just layer over it with, you know what, everything's okay. I'm doing okay. Don't let people see the wound that's inside. Don't let people see the scars that are inside. Don't let people see the sin that's been festering. I can't let anybody know about what's going on. And we build up this spiritual agoraphobia. And so we just think, I'm just going to paper over this with a new layer of identity. And I'm going to build up this own identity in this facade and everything's okay. And so we just paper over this. But deep down inside, there's a wound. It's just seeping. And it's the scarred image of God. What Jesus is showing us is he can restore. These townspeople thought they came to Jesus, and you know what their fear was? Let me tell you a little bit about the pigs. We want to know about the pigs. Can't tell you all that those pigs had to do with the whole thing, but let me tell you what they represented in that culture. They represented a fortune for somebody. Pig herding produced coveted meat in the Roman population. And so 2,000 pigs was somebody's livelihood. It might have been the towns, multiple people who had gone in and, you know, we'll shepherd the pigs together. And this represented a fortune and the livelihood for some people. And when Jesus came and the demons went and the pigs died, the people looked with fear, what else will it cost if Jesus is in our presence? And I think we have that same fear. What will it cost me in life if I surrender all to Jesus so that I can reflect him? And so we just wrap another paper towel over it. You know what? I'm just going to paper over it. And we fearfully reject the one who can actually heal the wound because we're afraid of what it might cost. But look at the demoniac. The man who experienced the healing, he begs Jesus, I want to reflect. Can I just be with you and soak in more of the image? This man who is restored. And we look at Jesus' response and it seems almost terse, doesn't it? But Jesus rejected him and said, no, you can't be with me. Y'all, let me tell you what happened there. That wasn't Jesus being mean and rejecting this man he just healed. What Jesus was doing, this community thought they had rid themselves of Jesus, but what they got was the first missionary to the Gentiles, that this man who had been imprinted with the image of Jesus and been restored with the image of God might now go out and reflect that image to his community. And so it comes to you and me, will we fearfully reject or will we faithfully reflect the image of Jesus like we've been called to do? No longer is that man known as a demoniac, but everywhere he goes, he's now going to be known as the man who is restored.
and everybody marveled. By the power of Jesus, God is restoring us as his image bearers for his glory. That's what he's been doing since the dawn of sin in our community, in our world. Restoring image bearers. Taking people who were made in the image of God and then the image of God was distorted and Jesus is now, God has been on a mission to restore that image and he's doing it today. The first thing is we've got to believe that that spiritual evil exists. Sin exists and it's part of our nature when we're born. Sin is not just a willful act against God. It is a nature that we've inherited from Adam and Eve. If we want to be restored, what it means is surrendering that sin to Jesus. Jesus, you paid the cost of that sin, so I no longer have to bear it, and I can now reflect that image of God again. And once we've experienced the restoring power of Jesus, it's Jesus, now how can I reflect you in my community? 